Well, howdy, and welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad. <laughs> Chapter 19 The Chase In a few minutes, the Henley's brilliant searchlight was turned on. Picked up the speedboat, which was racing toward shore at full power. But gradually, the Coast Guard lessened the distance between them. Chief Petty Officer Brown picked up a megaphone and shouted for the fleeing men to stop. They paid no attention. We'll have to show them we mean business, the officer told Biff, Phil, and Jerry. We'll shoot across their bow. He ordered the boys out of the line of fire, in case the smuggler should attempt to retaliate. They obeyed, and though from their shelter the three could not see the speedboat, they listened intently to what was going on. The Henley plowed ahead, and presently the boys heard a shot whistle through the air. There. Stop your engine, Brown commanded. A second later, he added, Drop those guns! The smugglers eventually did both. For Skipper Brown said to the boys, You can come forward now. The three scrambled to his side. Biff was just in time to see... He, one of the two captured men, half turned and slyly run his hand into the large pocket of his sports jacket. Biff expected him to pull out a gun and was about to warn Brown when the smuggler withdrew his hand and dropped something into the water. The rare drugs, Biff thought. Instantly, he began peeling off his clothes, and when the others asked him what he was doing, who in this for, he merely said, got an underwater job to do. Biff was over the side in a flash and swimming with strong, long strokes toward the speedboat. He went beyond it and around to the far side. In the meantime, Petty Officer Brown had ordered the smugglers to put their hands over their heads. As the Henley came alongside, two of the enlisted Coast Guard men jumped across, slipped handcuffs on them. Brown instructed one of the enlisted men to take their prisoners back to Coast Guard headquarters in the smuggler's boat. You ain't got nothing on us. You ain't got no right to arrest us, one of the captured men cried out. At that moment, Beth Hooper's head appeared over the side of the speedboat, and a moment later he climbed aboard. He called out, You got plenty on these men. Here's the evidence. He held up a waterproof bag, tightly sealed. It was transparent, and the printing on the contents was easily read. I happen to know that what's in here is a rare drug, Biff added. I heard our doctor mention it just a few days ago. The announcement took the bravado out of the smugglers. The two men insisted they were only engaged to pilot the speedboat and deliver the drugs. They would not give the name of the person who had hired him, nor the spot where they were supposed to go. We know both the answers already, Petty Officer Brown told the smugglers. Then he said to his wheelsman, Head for the house on the cliff. They may need a little more help over there. 
Biff was hauled aboard, and as he put his clothes back on, the Henley shot through the water. He whispered to his pals, We'll see some more excitement, maybe. Sometime before this, Chet and Tony had reached the area where the secret tunnel was. The patrol boat, which had been following them, turned on its great searchlight to pick out the exact spot. Look! Chet cried out. A speedboat with two men in it had just entered the choppy, rocky waters in front of the tunnel. Halt! Skipper Bertram and the Alice ordered. A man at the wheel obeyed the command and turned off his motor, but instead of surrendering, he shouted to his companion, Dive, Snyphon! Quick as a flash, the two smugglers disappeared into the water on the far side of their boat. When they did not reappear, Chet called, I'll bet they're swimming underwater to the tunnel. Aren't we going after them? We sure are, Petty Officer Bertram replied. Tony, can you find the channel which leads to that tunnel? I think so, Tony answered, eyeing the smuggler's speedboat, which now unattended, had been thrown violently by the waves onto some rocks. Then we'll come aboard your boat, the petty officer stated. He left two of his own men aboard the Alice to guard it and to be ready for any other smugglers who might be arriving at the hideout. The rest of the crew, including Bertram himself, climbed aboard the Napoli, and Tony started through the narrow passage between the rocks, leading to the tunnel. One of the enlisted men in the prow of the boat operated a portable searchlight. Everyone kept looking for the swimmers as they went through the tunnel, but did not see them. When the Napoli reached the pond, the man hand swung his lights around the circular shoreline. There they are! Our check cried out. Two smugglers, dripping wet, had just opened the secret door to the cliff. They darted through and closed the door behind them. Tony pulled his boat to the ledge in front of the door, turned off the engine, and jumped ashore with their others. To their surprise, the door was not locked. I'll go first, Bertram announced. Be careful, Chet begged. There may be a man with a gun on the other side. The officer ordered everyone to stand back as he pulled the door open. He beamed the searchlight inside. No one was in sight. Come on, men, the skipper said excitedly. The group quickly went along the route the Hardys had discovered earlier. When they reached the corridor and saw the three doors, Tony suggested they look inside to see if the Hardys were prisoners. One by one, each room was examined, but found to be empty. The searchers hurried on down the corridor and up the stairway, which led to the woodshed of the pilot place. They pushed the trap door, but it did not open. Their light revealed no hidden springs or catches. The two smugglers that got away from us may have sounded an alarm, Bertram said. They probably set something heavy on top of this trap door to delay us. Then we'll heave it off, Chet declared. He and Tony, with two of the enlisted men, put their shoulders to the trap door and heaved with all their might. At last it raised a little, then fell back into place. 
It isn't nailed shut from the other side at any rate, Bertram said. Give it another shove. The floor beneath it tried once more. Now they all could hear something sliding sideways. All together now, Chet said, puffing. One, two, three. The heave that followed did the trick. A heavy object toppled with a crash, and the trap door opened. As before, Chief Petty Officer Bertram insisted on being the first one out. There was not a sound from the grounds, hounds, nor the house, and not a light in evidence. He told the others to come up with caution. This may be an ambush. Watch your step. If anything starts to pop, you boys go back down through the trap door. Suddenly there was a sound of cars turning into the lane leading to the pilot place. The vehicle's lights were so bright that Bertram said, I believe it's the police. A few minutes later, the cars reached the rear of the old house and state troopers piled out. out. Chief Petty Officer Bertram hurried forward to introduce himself to Captain Ryder of the state police. The two held a whispered conversation. From what the boys overheard, they figured the troopers planned to raid the house. Just as the man seemed to reach a decision, everyone was amazed to see a man appear at the rear window of the second floor hall. He held a gun in his right hand, but with his left, he gestured for attention. My name's Snatman, he announced with a theoretical wave of his hand. Before you storm this place, I want to talk to you. I know you've been looking for me and my men a long time, but I'm not going to let you take me without your, some people on your side getting killed first. He paused dramatically. Come to the point, Snackman, Captain Ryder called up to him. He too had a gun poised for action should it become necessary. I mean, the smuggler cried out, I got three hostages in this house, Fenton Hardy and his two sons. Chet and Tony jumped. The boys had found their father only to become captives themselves. Now the three were to be used as hostages. And what's the rest? Captain Ryder asked acidly. This, if you let me and my men go, We'll clear out of here. One will stay behind long enough to tell you where the Hardys are. Our snapman now set his jaw. But if you come in and try to take us, it'll be curtains for the Hardys. Chet and Tony's heart sank. What was going to be the result of this nightmarish dilemma? In the meantime, Frank, Joe, and their father, for the past hour had despaired of escaping before Snapman might carry out his sinister threat. After the smuggler left the attic, attic, they heard hammering and suspected the smugglers were nailing bars across the door. The Hardys had tiptoed to the foot of the stairway, only to find their fears confirmed. If those bars are made of wood, Frank whispered, Maybe we could cut through them with our knives without too much noise. We'll try, his father agreed. Joe, take that knife I got from Malloy. As the 
Detective Artie sat on the steps, leaning weakly against the wall. His two sons got to work. They managed to maneuver the knives through the crack near the knob. Finding the top of the heavy crossbars, the boys began to cut and hack noiselessly. Frank's knife was already dull, and it was not long before Joe's became also. This greatly hampered their progress. Half an hour later, the boys' arms were aching so badly that Frank and Joe wondered how they could continue. But the thought that their lives were at stake drove them on. They would rest for two or three minutes, then continue their efforts. Finally, Joe finished cutting through one bar and started on the second of the three they had found. Ten minutes later, Frank managed to cut through his. Now we take turns, he told his brother. Working their way this way with rest periods in between, the boys found the task less adurous. We're almost free, Joe finally said hopefully. Just then the Hardys heard cars coming into the driveway. They were sure the police had arrived because of the illumination lighting the place even to the crack under the attic door. It was less than a minute later they heard the cars come to a stop outside and that snapman's voice bargaining for his own life in exchange for his hostages. Let's break this door down and take our chances, Frank whispered hoarsely. No, his father said. Snapman and his men would certainly shoot us. At this instant, Frank gave a low cry of glee. His knife had just hacked through the wooden bar. Turning the knob, he opened the door, and the three hardies stole silently from their prison. From the bedroom doorway, they peered out where Snapman was still trying to bargain with the police. No one else was around. Their boys and their father looked at one another, telegraphing a thought, a common thought. They would rush the king of smugglers and overpower him. Chapter 20 The Smuggler's Request As the three hardies crept forward, hoping to overpower Snapman before he saw them, they heard a voice outside the house say, You'll never get away from the, with this, Snapman. He may as well give up without any shooting. I'll never give up. The house is surrounded with troopers and Coast Guard men. What do I care, Snapman shouted, waving his arms out the window. I got three hostages here, and I got one of the Coast Guard. He's in the house, too, Snapman laughed. Trying to catch me, eh? Well, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> there was silence outside the house. This seemed to worry the man. He cried out, It won't do you any good to talk things over. I got you where I want you, and like three stalking panthers, Frank, Joe, and their father pounced upon the unwary smuggler. Mr. Artie knocked the man's gun from his hand. It flew out the window and thudded to the ground. Lo, the boys pinned his arms back and buckled in his knees. From below came a whoop of joy. 
The Hardys have captured Snapman, the voice of Chet Morton. My man will never let you in here, the victim screamed. He snarled, twisted, and turned in his captor's grasp. Mr. Hardy, fearful that Snapman would shout to order his men upstairs, clamped a hand over the smuggler's mouth. By this time, there was terrific confusion inside and outside the pilot place. State troopers and the Coast Guard men had burst into both the front and rear doors. Others guarded the side of the house to prevent any escapes from the windows. A few shots were fired, but soon the smuggling game gave up without fighting further. The capture of their leader and the sudden attack had unnerved them. The Hardys waited upstairs with their prisoner. In a few moments, Chet and Tony appeared, and behind them, to the other astonishment of Frank and Joe, were Beth, Phil, and Jerry. Stories were quickly exchanged, and Mr. Hardy praised Joe, Frank, and Joe Chums for their efforts. All this time, Snapman glowed maliciously. In a few minutes, Chief Petty Officer Bertram and Brown appeared in the second floor hall with Captain Ryder. Immediately, the state trooper fastened handcuffs onto the prisoner. He was about to take him away when Frank spoke up. There's someone else involved in this smuggling gang who hasn't been captured yet. You mean the man who got away from here in the truck, Officer Ryder asked? We've set up a roadblock for him and expect to capture him any minute. Frank shook his head. Ali Cigna, the crewman on the Marco Polo, has a friend who owns a small cargo ship. Right now it's lying somewhere offshore. Snapman was thinking of putting my dad, Joe, and me on it and arranging things so we'd never get home again. The king of the smugglers, who had been silent for several minutes now, cried out, You're crazy! There's not a word of truth in it! There isn't any boat offshore! The others ignored the man. As soon as he stopped yelling, Joe took up the story. I have a hunch you'll find your Coast Guard man and as a prisoner on that cargo ship. The name of the captain is Foster. You mean our man Ayers is on that ship? Petty Officer Brown asked unbelievingly. We don't know anyone named Ayers, Frank began. He stopped short looked at his brother. They nodded significantly at each other. Then Frank asked, Does Ayers go under the name of Jones? He might if he were cornered. You see, he was sort of a counter-spy for the Coast Guard. He pretended to join the smugglers, and we hadn't heard from him since Saturday. I found out about him, Snapman bragged. That name Jones didn't fool us. I saw him make a sneak treat up to your patrol boat. Frank and Joe decided that this was the scene they had seen through the telescope. They told about their rescue of Jones after a hand grenade had nearly killed him. They also gave an account of how his kidnappers came to the Kane farmhouse, bound up the farmer and his wife, and taken Jones. 
Skipper Brown said he would send a patrol boat out to investigate the waters in the area, try to find Captain Foster's ship. We'll wait here for you, Captain Ryder stated. This case seems to be one, both are branches of service. Two kidnappings on land and a theft from the Marco Polo, as well as an undeclared vessel offshore. While he was gone, the Hardys attempted to question Snapman. He refused to admit any guilt. Connection with smuggling operations were the shipment of stolen goods from one state to another. Frank decided to talk to him along different lines, hoping the smuggler would eventually confess something he did not intend to. I heard you inherited this house from your uncle, Mr. Pilot. Frank began. That's right, what is it to you? Frank was unruffled. I was curious about the tunnel, the stairways, and the cave, he said pleasantly. Did your uncle build them? Snapman dropped his sullen attitude. No, he didn't, the smuggler answered. My uncle found them all by accident. He started digging through his cellar wall to enlarge the place broke right through to that corridor. I see, Frank said. Have you any idea who did build it? Snapman said that his uncle had come to the conclusion that the tunnel and pond had been discovered by pirates long ago. They apparently decided it would be an ideal hideout. It had built the steps all the way to the top of the ground. Of course, the woodshed wasn't there then, Snapman explained. At least, not the one that's here now. The trap door was, though, but there was a tumble-down building over it. What about the corridor? Was it the same size when your uncle found it? Yes, the smuggler answered. My uncle figured the li they were living quarters for the pirates when they weren't on their ship. Pretty fascinating story, Tony Preto spoke up. Several seconds of silence followed. Snapman's eyes started from one boy to another. Finally, they fastened on Frank Hardy, and he said, Now that I'm going to prison, the eyepieces in your telescope and your motorcycle tools won't do me any good. You'll find them in a drawer on, in the kitchen. Thanks a lot, Frank said. There was another short silence. Then the smuggler went on, his head down and his eyes almost closed. Mr. Hardy, I envy you, and I, I never thought I'd be making this kind of a confession. You know almost everything about what I've been doing. I'll tell the whole story later, since they're going to find that Coast Guard officer. Iyer's on Foster's ship. There's no use in my holding out any longer. I said I envy you, Mr. Hardy. It's because you brought up two such fine boys, and they got swell friends. Me, I wasn't so lucky. My father died when I was little. I was pretty headstrong, and my mother couldn't manage me. I began to make the wrong kind of friends, and after that, you know how it is. My uncle who owned this place might have helped me, but he was mean and selfish and never gave us any money. 
The most he would do was invite my mother and me here once in a while for a short visit. I hated him because he made my mother work very hard around the house all the time we were here. It wasn't any vacation for her. One of the times when I was here, my uncle showed me the pirate's hideout, and I never forgot it. After I got in with a gang of hoods, I kept thinking about this place and what a swell hideout it would be for smugglers. I was afraid to try it while my uncle was alive, but when I heard he was dead, I thought that was my chance. I didn't dare go to claim the property as the rightful heir, but now I'm planning to take it over. Of course, it won't do me any good because I'll know I'll have to do a long stretch in the pen. But I'm going to ask those executioners to use my uncle's money to raise this, run this place as a boy's home. I mean, a place where boys without proper home training can come to live. The group listening to Snapman, King of the Smugglers, was too overwhelmed by his complete change of heart to say anything for a few seconds. But when the man looked up, as if pleading for his hearers to believe him, Mr. Hardy said, That's a very fine thing for you to do, Snapman. I'm sure the boys who benefit from living here will always be grateful to you. The solemn scene was suddenly interrupted by the return of Chief Petty Officer Brown. He reported that another patrol boat had picked up his message about Captain Foster's ship, and within a few minutes reported sighting it. Then, within a quarter of an hour, word came that Captain Foster had been put under arrest, and the missing Coast Guard man had been found on the ship, as well as a quantity of merchandise which the captain had expected Snapman to remove. The prisoners were now taken away from the pilot home, and the Hardys and their friends found themselves alone. Chet asked suddenly, How do we get home? Tony grinned. I guess the Napoli will hold all of us. The group went to the woodshed, opened the trap door, and started down the secret passage to the pond below. They climbed to the Napoli, and Tony slipped behind the wheel. The Coast Guard men had thoughtfully left the portable searchlight on the prow and Tony was able to make the trip through the tunnel and the narrow channel out to the ocean without accident. Suddenly, Frank spoke up. Dad, what happened to your car? Mr. Hardy smiled. It's in a garage in Bayport. I was being followed, so I shook hook off the shadowers and took the bus. He added ruefully. But it didn't do me much good. Snapman's men attacked me and took me prisoner on the road. The famous detective now said, While I have the chance, I want to thank each of you boys individually for what you did. Without the seven of you, this case might have never been solved. Alden and I might not have been found alive. Modestly, Frank and Joe and their friends acknowledged the praise secretly hoping another mystery would come their way soon. One did, and by learning the secret of the old mill, the Hardy Boys encountered a cunning gang of counterfeiters. Suddenly, Joe remarked, Compliments are flying around here pretty thick, but there's one person we forgot to mention. 
Without him, Frank and I might have never found Dad. Who's that, Biff asked. Pretzel Pete. That's right, said Frank. All together, fellows, a rousing cheer for Pretzel Pete. Episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Rail Fan Roberts Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions. And all, all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions.